Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. So, we are in Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, as we were last week, we started in, and this week we're going to finish up with Nehemiah, and next week, Lord willing, Josh uh, Fillmore will be preaching on the book of Malachi, which is the last uh, canonical book, the last book of the Old Testament. And then, you know what we're going to do then? We're going into the New Testament, that's right. Looking forward to these, this is great. Um, so the, the lineup of biblical books telling the story of Israel the people that God chose to reveal himself in and through goes like this. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Stop. That's the narrative. All of the other books of the, Bible, of the Old Testament are all, all fit in there. Whether it's the Psalms or the prophets, they all fit in along the timeline. And if you learn the timeline, you will, it will do almost <laughs> it'll do so much for you, for you if, if you haven't done it. If you haven't learned, learned the timeline, I encourage you to learn the narrative, the storyline of the Old Testament so that you can then fit the different other parts in, whether it's a, a, a psalm or, or proverbs or uh, uh, the books of the prophets. Uh, we call them poetical books and uh, major and minor prophets. And uh, Malachi next week is... One of those uh, books of the prophets, right? The last, uh, the last of the Old Testament prophets, prophet Malachi. Um, so the the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther are represent the the last of the Old Testament his, history uh, narrative historical uh, books, and uh, Ezra, uh, the story of Ezra, Nehemiah, which are one book in the Hebrew. Uh, tells uh, the generation, or at least the first six chapters of Ezra, tell about the generation that returned to the land after the exile under the leadership of Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua, or Joshua the priest. That's also the days of Zechariah Haggai. Okay, we talked about that. Uh, and then, then there is about an 80-year, uh, I guess you could call it a jump, from the days of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the high priest, as described by Ezra in the first six chapters of Ezra, about 80 years later to the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, which was also the times of Esther and Malachi the prophet. And so we have the story of the generation that returned, and now we're into the next generation that's represented by those names I just, you just uh, mentioned. So today we're in Nehemiah. Uh, the, last, the last several chapters of Nehemiah. Um, it's interesting, you know, we struggle sometimes. Um, I struggle sometimes. Uh, I struggle with lots of things, but... One of the things that I have always found interesting and, and sometimes challenging is if I 
and I'm up here and I'm uh, feel like I've com I'm communicating well because um, there's many days when I feel like I don't communicate well. But uh, afterwards, uh, there's always a time when people uh, are leaving or whatever and they come up and, and uh, people oftentimes don't know what to say. Um, you know, if you, because if you say, really, oh, that was really good, uh, then, well, maybe you just, maybe you weren't preaching strong enough. Um, and uh, you probably have all heard the story about the pa pastor who was at, standing at the door after the service, and, and somebody walked up and said, uh, Pastor, that was, that was just really good preaching. And the pastor said, well, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And the fellow said, well, it, wa it wasn't that good. And whether we, whether we realize it or not, it, it, it's, not, it's not just me. You, some of you have a hard time taking compliments too, right? Right? It is like, oh, shucks, you know? Stop it, I love it, you know? And uh, last week when we were in the first several chapters of Nehemiah, that, that's really pertinent because what we see there in the life of, uh, of Nehemiah as, he's, as God exercises his heart and as he begins to pray and, and he goes before the, the king of Persia, uh, and Artaxerxes, I think it is, and, and then he, he makes his, uh, his plans and, and, and prayerfully sets out and comes back to Jerusalem. We see what we see there demonstrated through that whole entire narrative of the first several chapters of Nehemiah is uh, very much this idea of of, uh, uh, of a type of faith or a kind of faith that we would call biblical faith um, that does not absolve us of responsibility or cause us to be passive or resigned when it comes to how we do stuff. Nehemiah didn't just say, oh, God is great and he's going to take care of everything and all I need to do is just sit back and let it all happen. Sometimes that's how we understand biblical faith. See? And what, what I tried to share last week in part was that idea that, that's, that, that that type of resigned, passive faith is not what the Bible presents to us as biblical faith. And Because the Bible says there's different kinds of faith, right? Remember James, the book of James in the New Testament? So if you see your, your brother you know, in need and you, and you, and you uh, do nothing about it, you know, he's, and he talks about faith and works, and, and then he says, you know, can that type of faith save somebody? Can that kind of faith? So there's different kinds of faith, and we need to have the kind of faith that Nehemiah had. And, and uh, um, we have to be careful we don't interpret biblical passages in a way that puts them off center Missing the intent of God. And that's what today is largely about. Is that whole problem that we often wrestle with of our interpretations and applications of scripture taking us somewhere that God never intended us to go. And uh, if I could say it this way, God's word is inerrant. 
God's word is infallible. Preachers and teachers, on the other hand, no. No matter who it is. And when we start to think of preaching and teaching as uh, the basis of authority, we've crossed a line. It's the word of God that is the authority. Um, and that's kind of what I want to really think through some with you this morning as we consider these last chapters of Nehemiah, because I think if we're going to interpret Nehemiah correctly and Ezra Nehemiah and this whole period of history correctly, we're going to need to be aware of the, of the fact that sincere people make mistakes. It's my conviction that Ezra and Nehemiah made some real serious mistakes when it comes to applying uh, the, the, the law of uh, Moses. Um, I encourage you to search that out for yourself, but let's let's just uh, spend a little time this morning thinking through some of these things. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, compares the uh, abrupt ending of Nehemiah with uh, the abrupt ending of the book of Acts. Um, and there are some comparisons to be made. Ezra and Nehemiah is the last of the narrative of the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Acts is the last of the narrative of the New Testament. Um, and there are other similarities. You understand, I hope you understand that the Old Testament prophets are to the Old Testament narrative what the New Testament apostles are to the New Testament narrative. So when we read the narrative of the Old Testament, we have the, the prophets telling us... Um, what God thinks of all this. <laughs> and when you read the book of Acts, we have the apostles telling us what we think. And the reason that's important is because of this. Just because something happens doesn't mean it should have happened. Just because something happens doesn't mean it's supposed to happen. We need, we need God to tell us what he thinks of these events that are recorded. So the events are recorded inerrantly. But how we interpret those events and what they mean, that's where we really need the prophets in the Old Testament and the, uh, the apostles of the New Testament to help us with those things. So that's another similarity, I guess, between uh, the, the narrative of the Old Testament and the narrative of the New. But uh, there's the fact that Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of two parts of the same book. And Luke, Acts, I don't know if you knew, knew this, but Luke and Acts are both part of the same uh, book, two, volume one, volume two, written by Luke. So there are similarities, but I would suggest the similarities are really superficial um, because um, I, I, here's, what I, here's what I think. I think that rather than comparing Ezra and Nehemiah with the book of Acts, uh, just because they both have a somewhat abrupt ending, I think I would humbly suggest to you that we, rather than comparing them, what we really need to be doing is contrasting them. Now stay with me here. I'm, this is not technical. This is just maybe a little bit involved, but think about think about it. Think about the contrast um, between these two uh, narratives as we as we talk today, because uh, there this, the contrast is is really quite striking. The um, 
message of Jesus Christ is a message of victory and hope and blessing that never ends. While the message of the narrative of the Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah in particular, is more like, oh God, here we go again. God, if you don't do something, this is just going to keep repeating itself over and over and over again. Because we're in a big mess down here. Now, what are my, what's my basis for suggesting that as the narrative for Ezra and Nehemiah? Because I realize that sounds pretty pessimistic, but um, there's all kinds of things I could suggest to you this morning. But I want to take us through some of the some of the material. But um, as much as we have time for, but. I, I'm saying this in part this morning, that the hermeneutical key or the key to understanding the material of these books is, to, is the place that they fit in the overall narrative of the entire Bible. I'm talking specifically about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because everything in the Bible needs to be understood in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he is the center. He is what ties all of the pieces together. And so with that in mind, uh, let's just jump in here to Nehemiah uh, and, and try to work through some of this. Um, it, it can be somewhat in, involved, but I hope we'll be able to, to uh, make sense of some of my muddled thoughts on it. Nehemiah chapter 6, the wall is complete. Okay, the wall is complete. And uh, Nehemiah 7 is a list of names of the exiles who returned to Jerusalem with their leaders who came up, Nehemiah 7, 5, at the first. So those are a list of names and, and leader, uh, of leaders and people who come up, came up in the days of uh, the first generation, the days of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the priest, and and Zechariah and Haggai. And uh, then as we come to chapter 8 of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 begins with the people all gathering together and requesting that Ezra, the scribe, read the scriptures to them. Specifically, they ask for him to read from the book of the Law of Moses. You can see that there on the screen, and you can look at it in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse one. Now, this is where the Nehemiah part of Ezra and Nehemiah brings Ezra on the scene. We don't know exactly how much overlap there was between Nehemiah and Ezra time-wise. I've read different things on that. Seems like there might have been about a dozen years of it between them in terms of when they actually made the trip to, to Jerusalem. But, it, but it's really not, not really clear. But obviously they were contemporaries because this text puts them right together in the same uh, revival. So they're, uh, they're there and uh, Ezra, uh, the people call on Ezra. And, if you, and you don't need to turn there. You can if you want. But Ezra chapter 7 verse 6 
describes Ezra as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules to Israel. Keep that in mind. Ezra chapter 8 verses 1 through 8. Let's read there together. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women who, um, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate uh, from early morning until midday. So quite a time to stand and read. Um, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that the, they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood, and then names uh, a number of, of uh, the leaders who stood with him there to his left and to his right. And verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it, which is an interesting statement. Um, and he opened it all, uh, it all the people stood when he opened it. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then also it says, it lists uh, the leaders again, who were the Levites that were there. And it says uh, that they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read the book of the law from the, the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And if you look at verse 9, you see that Nehemiah was there and was a part of that. So this is a great revival. It appears to be genuine. There's real remorse uh, for sin as you read on. In, if we read on in the passage, the peoples were, you know, they were uh, overcome with a sense uh, of genuine uh, repentance, like Clint mentioned earlier, um, and, uh, and the conviction of their sin in response to the reading of God's law. And then at the end of the day, they send the people home with a message of joy. So their sorrow turns to joy, and they go home celebrating because they had heard the word of God and understood it, which in part of the issue here is, is an actual a language issue, right? Because by this time, some of the people could not understand the Hebrew. Um, and they didn't have copies, access to copies like we do either, right, of, of Scripture. So, so they send them all home rejoicing, and everybody goes home rejoicing, and it was a, what you call a very good day. So the second day comes. The next day, the leaders all get together to have their own personal Bible study with Ezra. And it says there in uh, verse 14 that they found it written in the law uh, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people should dwell in, in booths. I always have trouble saying that word. It always comes out like booze, right? And I've, <laughs> I've had people call me on that, actually. B-O-O-T-H-S. Um, it's kind of cool because 
the, the, one of the feasts that God had instituted for the people of Israel back in the days of Moses was called the Feast of Booths. And uh, what they would do is they would, they would all go camping for a week. I kid you not. That was the Feast of Booths. It was, it was kind of cool. I'm sure the kids really enjoyed it and everything, right? And they would all just leave their houses and they would make a, a lean-to and uh, of sorts, and they would all live in those for a week. And God, God, there was a teachable moment in everything, but, but, but the thing is, is that that hadn't been observed in Israel's history at all. It was one of those things that Israel had just neglected to do. They hadn't done that. In fact, it says, if you look in verses 17 and 18 of Nehemiah chapter 8, it says, And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths, uh, for from the days of Jeshua, or Joshua, if you will, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. So all, all the way from when they were first formed as a nation, they had apparently completely neglected to do this. You know, I don't know, maybe they just thought it wasn't important. Maybe they didn't, it didn't feel relevant. I could see that happening because what good's it going to do to, you know, to go camping for a week? Like, what are we actually going to accomplish by doing that? And I think it's one of those areas where we need to trust God that when he tells us to do something, he has his reasons, right? So day by day, verse 18 well, let's back up a little more. It says, uh, there was very great rejoicing. That's the last of verse 17. There was very great rejoicing. And uh, day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So this is all good stuff, right? And then a couple of weeks go by. You know, they've, they've been camping, and, and, and uh, that's been really uh, quite an experience. It's, it's good. They're happy, they're rejoicing, and they all get together again. They all assemble again in chapter uh, 9. And it says there in chapter 9, verse 2, that they separated themselves from all the foreigners. Um, we don't have time to look at all the passages where this theme comes up in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but suffer it to say that it's a lot. It comes up over and over again. Uh, later on in the book of Nehemiah, it says that they separated all of those out who were of foreign descent, which I find really interesting. I don't know how they would really do that. I know they were they loved their genealogies, and they right they kept records. But the problem with that is that um, they all had some foreign members in their family tree. Rahab comes to mind, and Ruth, and people like that. Uh, the text doesn't say that Bathsheba was a Hittite, but there's a strong probability that she was, that Solomon's mother. Um, those things all become pertinent, but anyways, we, we won't dwell on that right now, but it's one of those things. It's one of those things that should tweak something in our brains. Because as you come into the New Testament, uh, it's going to change up big time, right? Big, big changes on the way. 
Uh, let me see. So the text goes on to say that they read from the law of Moses for a quarter of the day, and then they spent the next quarter of the day um, confessing their sins before God, and which is a really good thing to do. I hope we appreciate the, the importance of that. Um, and then uh, verse 5, chapter 9, verse 5. The Levites, Joshua, Cadmiel, Bani, and a few other guys said, they were the worship leaders, right? They said to the people, they said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. That's what, you, that's what worship leaders do, right? They encourage people to worship worship God. And this is all, this is all good. This, you know, if you haven't you know, seen this uh, before, this is uh, one of the greatest revivals uh, uh, pictured for us in, in Scripture. It's like the people's hearts are really exercised here. All the indications are, right? Um, and then what follows is a well-informed and thoughtful confession that reaches back. You, you can read through it. I'm not, we're not going to read through it this morning, but it, goes, it reaches all the way back to creation, and it starts talking about the, 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 how the, the Lord made us, and then it, it, it goes from creation to Abraham and the patriarchs and to Moses and the exodus and the giving of the law and the sacrifices and on throughout the history of Israel into the promised land, right up through all about the rebellions of the people over and over and over again. How God would bless the people, uh, but how the people would always fail to live up to their part in things, uh, all the way right up to the destruction of the beautiful city when the city is decimated and destroyed and all the people are carted off to uh, exile. And I, I say, we're not going to read through, but, but let's pick up it, and, and we'll get a sense of this. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse uh, 32, verse 35. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria, that was pre-Babylon, the northern kingdom, remember, was the Assyrians that took them away. Uh, yet, verse 33, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. If you want a summary of the whole basic confession and maybe the whole history of Israel, it's right there in several words. It pretty much sums it up. God has dealt faithfully, verse 33, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave us, even in their own kingdom. Take note of those words. Even in their own kingdom. What, what, what's, what's he mean? Prior to the exile, Israel was its own kingdom. 
They didn't answer to anybody but God. They had their own laws. They had their own ways. They had their own property. They had their own freedom, their own responsibilities. It was, all, it was, it was the kingdom that God had given them. As we think about the context of these statements, hopefully the contrast will, will, stand, will really stand out to us. And amid your, good, your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. The next two verses I find very interesting. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 36 and verse 37. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Keep in mind, we are talking 80 years after the return. So, the people are back in the land. But it's not the same. Let me um, take you back to a, 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 an earlier time. Let me take you back to that generation that came up out of the exile. You can read it in first six chapters of Ezra. Um, I, we covered that a few weeks back, uh, but there was a terrible snowstorm that day, and our video record didn't work. So most of you wouldn't have been here when we covered it. I hope that you've read it. I hope you're reading these passages through and so on. But when that first generation left uh, Babylon and made their way back to Jerusalem, Ezra tells the story of Zerubbabel and Jeshua and Zechariah and Haggai, how they rebuilt the temple. And he tells the story, and there's really interesting things in the story. They come back, and of course, if you're going to build a temple, the first thing you need, you need is a foundation. So they went to work and they laid the foundation. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 3. But it's a really interesting passage there where it says they laid the foundation and everybody shouted for joy and, and they were praising God and they were so happy, except all the old people. Now, old people aren't known for being happy all the time unless you have Alzheimer's and it's, work, and it's working for you. I was talking... <laughs> I was talking to somebody yesterday, actually, whose uh, dad has Alzheimer's, and he said to me, but here's the thing, he's happy. And we thank God for that together, uh, Matt and I did, because uh, that's a good thing. But anyways, these older people, they didn't have Alzheimer's. They could remember the old temple. 
And it says that they wept so loud. And this is what the text actually says in Ezra chapter 3. It says that you couldn't distinguish between the rejoicing and the weeping. I, I mentioned a few weeks back when we covered that. I really think that's almost like a, like a, 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 a parable for what's going on here. Because as time goes on and they, they, they struggle to build this temple, but they eventually, amidst great opposition, they got the temple built. Um, but, but when it was all said and done and they had the temple built and they had the, the great grand dedication time and they made their sacrifices and they observed their feasts, nothing happened. What I mean by nothing happened is if you compare and you go back to Exodus and you read about the tabernacle and God told them to build the tabernacle and they did, God showed up big time. There was fire, there was smoke, there were, there, it, was, it, was, it was something else. When they went into the land and God put it on David's heart to have a temple built and Solomon ended up building that temple, you can go back and read that too and you read there that it was an occasion of occasions. And they, the, the amount, Josh, how many, how many, how many uh, sacrificing did they do? You, had, you told us. Now, you remember? It's a lot, right? Like uh, unbelievable. But the, but here's the thing, though. God showed up. Like they had to get out of there because the temple just, just filled up with the glory of God and the fire and there was smoke and there was all kinds of stuff going on. Here in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezra, ne, then crickets. Now, I, I don't want to make an argument for silence, but the silence is deafening. And it's not just that. There are other things. There are other things as well that, um, that are significant here. Um, here's, here's something. We are slaves. That's what he says. This is not that. We thought we were going to get that. And what we got is this. And what is this? This is great distress. This is slavery. Those are the words that they use. Um, there was no cloud. There was no pillar. There was no fire. There was no smoke. There were no miracles. There was no manifest presence of God and there was no demonstration of the power of God. Now I know and I hope you know that you can't even breathe without God's help. I hope you know that. So when I say God didn't show up, I don't mean God wasn't there. Because God's always there. Just like God's always here. But there's a difference between God being present and God manifesting his presence and his power. And that is missing from this narrative. They're back in the land, but it's not their land. It's supposed to be their land. It was the land that God promised them. It was the land that they took possession of. But those days are gone. 
Now the land is not theirs. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah both had to get permission to even go to Jerusalem to do anything. Permission. From who? From a pagan king. A pagan king who ruled the land. And you know what? When you come into the New Testament, that's the situation. The only thing that really changes in that regard is that instead of having Persia, you now have Rome. The crushing iron fist of Rome. And there's all kinds of significant things to go with that. But, but there's famine in the land. I mentioned this last week. Nehemiah chapter 5, there's famine in the land. That's problematic. Um, I, I don't know. I stand to be corrected on, on all of this because, like I said before, these are, these are interpretive issues, right? But um, it seems to me that Ezra and Nehemiah's relationship with God, although obviously very, very sincere and very real and genuine, there still seems to be a bit of a distance there that, that, that I, I don't know. It's, it's like they, they, they are attempting to follow the Lord. I know God's working in their hearts. I know that... Um, that um, they have a, a, a real relationship with the Lord, and I know God, you know, used them and, and all of that. And I know that this great revival they're having here is 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 real and it's, it's uh, uh, legitimate. But I just get the sense that there's a, there's a distance there, and it's hard to put your finger on. But I, I, I think distance is the I don't know if distance is the right word or not, but it's the kind of thing where you walk, if you were to walk outside in the, in the nighttime and look up at the starry house and say, God, where are you? Because he just doesn't seem to be showing up. Yeah, we're getting some things done here, and we believe that it's only happening because you have granted us favor. And your hand is upon us. But there's some things about this that just really don't seem to add up. I would suggest to you humbly that the actions of the people recorded in the last sections of Ezra and Nehemiah that, that have no reference that I can find anywhere where God would confirm those directions is simply an attempt on their part to apply the law of Moses to their lives. And I think that the law of Moses here, that the, the old covenant is about to give way to a whole new reality. And I believe the narrative of the Old Testament leans hard into that new reality. And that new reality is the hope of Jesus Christ who came to deliver us from the bondage of the law of Moses. Because in the New Testament, you read a lot of comments from the apostles about the law of Moses and what it cannot do. I'll, uh, I'll read uh, one of those passages for you just... Um, I think I will. <laughs> I don't know. How about this? 
For God has done what the law, this is Romans 8, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. We're going to be in the New Testament before long and it's going to be wonderful to just go through those passages together with you. Um, I believe it's all set up for the New Testament. Because when I think about God being near, I think about the incarnation. I think about how near God drew to us when Jesus, the eternal Son of God, left the splendors and glories of heaven and actually took upon himself human flesh and was actually born, born of God, but born of the, of, of the, the, uh, the virgin as a living, breathing human being into this world to live for us and then to suffer and die for us. And I believe that we are meant to contrast everything up to that point with the entrance of Jesus into, uh, into the world. I can't find anywhere in the latter chapters, this would be Ezra chapters, uh, the, last, the last two chapters particularly of Ezra, and the last four chapters of Nehemiah, where they're putting all these reforms in place where God sanctions them. What did they do? What were those reforms? I wish, you know, we could actually, but hopefully you are. Hopefully you're reading through. Well, one of the things that they did, this is one of the things that they did, they said, oh, look at all these people that have married foreign wives. And they even had children. Send them all away. Divorce them. Divorce them all. Send them all away. As near as I can tell from my reading, both Ezra and Nehemiah sanctioned that. God doesn't make a comment. Unless you go to Malachi. What does Malachi say? It's interesting. You read through Ezra, uh, you'll see that Ezra said, this is a faithless act. You have married these foreign women, and that is a, a faithless act. Malachi says this, divorcing the wives of your youth is a faithless act. He says it's idolatry. You can read about it and you hear, set me up there, Josh. A lot riding on next week, buddy. <laughs> I don't pretend to understand all of these things, but I just, these are things that I, I'm reading through and, 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 and trying to uh, sort out. And uh, I, I think that, uh, I think that there were mis some mistakes made in the interpretation and application of Scripture. And, you know, you could say, it's, you can't expect Ezra and Nehemiah to have the same kind of, uh, of, of, of uh, you know, understanding that the New Testament writers have um, because revelation, the revelation of the Word of God progresses from the beginning to the end, right? You learn more. That's not to say God doesn't change. Malachi. God doesn't change. I am the Lord. I change not. But what does change? 
What does change is our understanding of, of God, right, and his greatness and his goodness. And we hopefully, every more day we learn more about what God is really like and what he really wants. That progresses. And in, and in the scripture, there is a progression in revelation of God. And it's the biggest, biggest uh, <laughs> sense of, of progression is from the Old Testament covenant to the covenant of, of Jesus Christ. Can we be sincere and be sincerely wrong? Um, another part of this whole part of this whole this whole thing about uh, foreign their foreign wives and divorcing the, the, their, their foreign wives. Uh, there is an attitude that's developing in, in Israel that bleeds heavily into the New Testament, and it's an attitude of uh, ethnic superiority and exclusivism. The book of uh, Nehemiah refers consistently to Ezra as Ezra the scribe. That's new language. We haven't heard that language before. What was the scribe? Well, when you come into the New Testament, you read all about the scribes. Um, but the scribes were, the, like it said in that passage earlier, they were experts in the law of Moses. And, uh, you know, I think we should applaud the revival led by Ezra and Nehemiah. I would say that we are right to hunger after those genuine experiences of sincere and fervent worship that includes singing and rejoicing and confessing our sin, all centered around the listening to the word of God as is being taught and as being explained. That's all good. But whether it's me or whether it's you or whether it's anybody else, we have to make sure that we are, are drawing a distinction between the word of God and the explanation or teaching of the word of God. There is a distinction there, and it's an important one. Um, Nehemiah 12. I'm almost, I think I'm, I'm almost ready to, to stop. Um, Nehemiah 12, verse 26 says, These were the days of Joachim, uh, the son of Jeshua, son of Josedach, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe. By the way, the book of Malachi says a lot of stuff to the priests and Levites. You'll be interested to read that because uh, he really, really takes them to task. What we see in the book of Nehemiah and what we see in the book of Malachi are very different stories. It's like the veneer gets pulled back and we get to see what's really going on in a lot of these people's lives. Because here's the thing, people. Here, here's the thing, all right? What has really changed at this point of history from the time Moses gave the law? What, what, why would we think that, yeah, God, we failed 750,000 times, but we're going to get it right this time? Yeah, we have this endless cycle of God being good and us failing and falling on our faces, but it's going to be different this time. What, is, what has changed? It doesn't change. It doesn't change till Jesus Christ shows up. Um, listen, listen to this um, uh, quote. This is from uh, Michael 
Haldeman. He says, in addition to the inspired written Hebrew scriptures, which Christians call the Old Testament, Judaism has an oral Torah. Torah means law or rule. Um, which is a tradition explaining what these scriptures mean and how to interpret them and apply the laws. Orthodox Jews believe God taught this oral Torah to Moses and to others down to the present day. This tradition was maintained only in oral form until the second century AD, which would put it at about 100 plus years, 200 years prior to the, or after the period that we're talking about. When the oral law was compiled and written down in a document called the Mishnah, over the next few centuries, additional commentaries elaborated on the Mishnah and were written down in Jerusalem and Babylon. These additional commentaries are known as the Gemara. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but the Gemara and the Mishnah together are known as the Talmud. And this was completed in the 5th century A.D. 6th uh, century A.D. No, I was, I was wrong on that. Uh, 200 years. That would be 500 years. Um... So if you were listening to that quote, you have the, the aura, oral law. What's the oral law? Well, it's the law that God didn't write down, and we're going to tell you what it is. And it explains the law that God wrote down, and you have to follow it. Can you see how this all sets up the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the priests and the elders and the rabbis of Jesus' day? And then you throw into that mix the soldiers and the centurions and the, the, the Roman king and, and the tax collectors and the zealots. <laughs> it makes a great story, doesn't it? But it's a story that teaches. What does it teach? It teaches the gospel. And we're not saved by the law. We could never be saved by the law. And Paul says we're not under it. We come to the um, end of book, end of the book of Ezra, and you have a forced uh, oath, an oath forced on the people followed by and in conjunction with investigations that were done, followed by prosecutions, and then they published a list of all the offenders. And that's how the book of Ezra ends. The book of Nehemiah ends when Nehemiah <laughs> grabs the guy, jumps on him, beats him, curses him, and pulls his hair out because he wouldn't do what he was supposed to do. I call that a setup for the New Testament. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that uh, the, the Bible is not all entirely dependable because I believe, absolutely believe the Bible is completely dependable. But we need to exercise great caution how we interpret the Bible and how we apply the Bible because I believe if we misinterpret the Bible, I believe we'll misapply the Bible. And I don't think that that's what God wants us to do. The books of Nehemiah and Ezra begin with such great hope and end with such great disappointment. I was saying to Josh this morning, 
I was testing him, actually. You know what the last two words in the book of Malachi are? The last two words in the Old Testament, do you know what they are? You, I, of course you don't, because I didn't either. I had to look it up. But they are the word, these words, utter destruction. Do you know what the last words of the New Testament are? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Book of Malachi is all about judgment. You read through it because you're going to hear a sermon next week. And it's going to be really good. It's all about judgment. You finish the book of Malachi and, and you go, thank you, Lord, for the New Testament. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Because without him, we are done. We're done. I'm done. What's that say, 1159? <laughs> uh, don't get carried away. <laughs> uh, dear. Do you want to stand for prayer? Because we're not done, pray, done until we pray, right? The law of Moses, Paul says one thing that, that in Romans chapter 3, he says, he says uh, something like this. He says, the law was given so that, that all, every tongue would be silenced and that the whole world would stand guilty before God. And the reason for that is because as much as we would like to think that we could somehow measure up to all of God's holy, righteous standards and and do everything and get it right this time. Without Jesus, you know, we would we would be lost for all eternity. Which begs the question. We know we're lawbreakers, but do we know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus personally as your Savior, the one who saves us from our sin. Do you know him? You know, we're going into the New Testament, but you don't have to wait to accept Jesus as your Savior. Uh, let me pray with you. Father, I pray for this tremendous group of brothers and sisters here today. And together, Lord, we ask that you would continue to give us understanding as we study your word together. And Lord, Help us to be humble and, and to know that, that it's your word that's infallible and we are not. Help us to understand. We thank you, Lord, that we have the, the New Testament uh, books and the revelation of the New Testament that help us uh, understand the keys to understanding what we're reading here in uh, Nehemiah. And we thank you today for Jesus. Thank you for the grace that's in Jesus. Thank you that you were willing to humble yourself, Lord, and come to this sin-soaked world and pay the price for, for our sin. Lord, we know that you are holy and righteous and that your law is good. But we know that we are broken, fallen, and we are sinners. 
in need of your saving grace. And we thank you. We, we stand here this morning and call upon your name and rejoice in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would just invite you to pray and just open up your heart and just say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you. I know you are holy. But I thank you for Jesus Christ and his willingness to, be, to come and be my Savior. I thank you that he lived a perfect life and that he died a substitutionary sacrificial death for me in my place. And that he rose again triumphant over sin, over death, and over hell, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, and even today intercedes for those who would call upon his name. And Lord, right now I ask you to save me from my sin and take me and make me your child. And I would give you all the praise and glory and love and serve and praise you all the days of my life. And I thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.